Blog Talk Radio. Funky, funky writer show is now in the air. My name is Robert Batista, and with over 200 episodes in cyberspace, the Funky Writer Show is now a cultural icon. Our guests have ranged from big name authors who had hit movies made from their books to up and coming writers publishing their first story. And what do we all have in common? The love for the written word. Connect with us on our exciting Twitter page by going to at the funky writer. Peace. It is not rainbows and unicorns, something reserved exclusively for hippies and lovers of the liberal arts. Peacemakers are brave. They are tough and uncompromising when it comes to doing what is right. Peace in the workplace is not a lofty goal. It is a human right. This is an ex- excerpt from the opening of my guest's recently published book. The book's name is Peace in the Workplace, Transforming Conflict into Collaboration by Robin Short. Welcome to the Funky Writer Show, Robin Short. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. Well, Robin, the third time is a charm, and uh, this is the third time you're on, and it's such a wonderful, wonderful feeling having you on again. So welcome, Robin. I'd like to do something different and give you the floor to open up the show so you can discuss the thought process leading up to the writing of your new book and how all the pieces of the puzzle came together to create this much-needed masterpiece. Well, thank you. Um, You know, the book really was a culmination of two important parts of my life. One was just the actual work experience that I had in corporate America. I spent probably about five to six years working um, for other organizations and then about 10 years working um, in my own company um, and, and having a lot of client relationships. And what was common to all of that is just that conflict was incredibly prevalent. But what I found when I was working inside of big organizations was that not only did we experience the, the regular conflict that you just, when you get humans together in a room, we're going to have disagreements, but there was also this tendency for um, – 
bullying behavior to thrive. And I've, I've been on the receiving end of bullying behavior, and I have also known many, many people who have as well. And watching the, the ripple effect of how that impacted not just their work life, but their home life and their physical, mental, emotional, spiritual health, and also observing the negative effect that it had on the organization itself. So it, it was something that was curious to me as to why is this behavior so prevalent. And then about five years ago, I started taking my interest in conflict more seriously, and I went back to school and got a master's in conflict management and dispute resolution. So this book is just a natural um, a natural output of my academic um, background sort of merging with my professional background and something that I have always been really passionate about and have become more so as I've dedicated my, my career really now to peace building is this idea of incorporating peace into the workplace because I don't think that is vernacular that anyone is using or even thinking about and yet it is an incredibly um, important concept if we're going to create an environment where where human beings are able to experience security and dignity and where organizations can really thrive as a result of that. One of the blurbs for your book states, if you lead or manage people, processes, or projects, you have experienced workplace conflict. After all, where there are people there is conflict. Robin, why in your research and experience is this simple fact so glaringly true, the reality that if you have people, you have conflict? Why in so many instances does conflict take precedence over collaboration? That is a really great question. And I think it has a lot to do with, um, well, there's, there's several, there's several things going on. One is we don't receive any formal education on conflict management skills in our early education, right? It's not prevalent in elementary school, secondary school, graduate school. The only, the only formal education that we receive around conflict management skills is if you go and seek that out in a graduate degree, which, which few people do because there's not a clear track to the workplace with that degree, right? Nobody's, nobody's hiring a mediator per se. You, you have to go kind of hang a shingle and create that. Um, so I think one is just an absolute lack of formal education around conflict skills. And then I think the other is we get into conflict because we don't know how to express our needs. And because we don't know how to express our needs, other people don't recognize the behavior, the negative behavior as an expression of an unmet need, we tend to look at it as an expression of um, poor values or poor character. So it becomes opportunities for judging people rather than opportunities for getting needs met. And, and that happens a lot around how people, um, how, how communication was modeled in the home. It impacts, um, I think, you know, gender differences has a lot to do. Men and women simply communicate a little bit differently. That can create conflict. And then, and then working in an environment where um, diversity is so important and it's in, it should be embraced by organizations, but with the embracing of diversity comes a lot of cultural confusion, right? People 
people don't then get necessarily the education on how to communicate in an environment where people are just different culturally from your um, background or the way you grew up. So I think that we get into conflict because we simply haven't developed the skill set and we don't understand behavior as, as um, mechanisms for getting needs met. We see behavior as something, as an opportunity to judge people from a value perspective or moral perspective. That's interesting. And to take what you just said a step further, in the book you write, destructive conflict in the workplace is most likely not a result of people choosing to cause harm, but rather individuals causing harm because they have not developed the tools to behave differently, as you spoke. But I got to tell you, Robin, this statement boggles my mind. Grown men and women do not only intellectually, but also spiritually not knowing how to stifle their harmful urges and choose peace. Isn't this one of the first things they are taught in schools and churches? Blessed are the peacemakers. Where are we failing as a society? Great question. Blessed are the peacemakers. But when you ask people, what is peace? Few people have a definition that they can really work with. When, when I ask people that question, you know, what is peace? What people tend to think about are mindsets, tranquility, serenity, calmness. And those things might be um, a result of peace, but they're not what peace actually is. Um, peace is a life of, of human security, right? So creating an environment where all people are secure and peace is the ability for people to live a life of dignity. And when we frame it that way and we think blessed are the peacemakers, well, the peacemakers are those people who are securing human security, creating human security, and treating all stakeholders that, they, that are influenced by their behavior with dignity. And those two things really take um, significant skills to accomplish, and it also takes time to to create that like collaboration really is the sweet spot for peace building, but it takes a lot more time investment and I guess practice as well to do that and practice. And I guess practice practice as well. And it's funny because research shows over and over and over again, that collaboration produces better results than competition. But I think it's built into our, um, our, our, our neurons in our brain, right? Like the brain is wired for survival and we survive in two key ways. We, we survive by competing, you know, our, our fear, our fear mechanism, our um, flight, you know, flight, fight, freeze mechanism. Right. right. And we, mm-hmm. fight or um, flight. right, exactly. And then we also do that through connecting with one another And I think the way we have evolved as human beings is that there was a time many, many, many thousands of years ago where competition might have been the more useful mechanism, and we've become really hardwired for that. But in reality, we live in a world where collaborating needs to be our new new sort of go-to choice for perpetuating the human species. (laughs) Right, right. You know, Robin, in working for corporate America, as you did most of my adult life, 
I found that there are so many factors that cause conflicts in the workplace, not getting raises or promotions, disciplinary actions such as suspensions, unionizing workers in a non-union shop, cutbacks, personality clashes, which can all lead to critical conflicts among workers. Does your book get into any of these specifics I've mentioned? Um, I'm not sure I would say that it gets into those specifics, but what it does do is is looks at how we um, understand each other, communicate with each other, and create organizations that mitigate against that type of conflict. And when you look at conflict and you peel it back, what's really going on at the core of it is that people are not feeling respected. They're not feeling like their contribution is valued. And that lack of feeling respected and appreciated manifests itself in all of those ways you just discussed. And then we start dealing with that manifestation of it instead of the core issue. Uh, Speaking of your great book, I think the cover design is extremely telling and well done. Did you design it yourself or have someone else do it? I had someone else do it. What I typically do is, um, because I'm a book publisher, I'm very intimately involved in the production of all of the books that I produce. And I tend to concept it, but then send it over to a designer to bring it to life and make it beautiful. So I sent her my vision, and then she made it much bigger, much much more beautiful than I could have made it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I tell you, it is striking. It is a great, great cover. So, Robin, you have graciously agreed to read a part of your book for us. Can you set up the piece before you read it, please? Sure, absolutely. So I chose to read an excerpt from Chapter 3, which is that it's called War in the Workplace, Dealing with Bullying Behavior and Oppressive Personalities. And the reason why I chose this um, section is because it, um, I think it's something that hits a nerve with a lot of people. Most people in American corporations have experienced bullying on some level, and I don't think that they understand how uh, prevalent it really is. And, right. and the bullying aspect of, of, of how we get work done in America was really the, um, the primary inspiration for why I wrote the book, because it is so prevalent and it has such an incredible impact on just our, our humanity that I felt like there has to be another way of doing business. Um, so that, that, that's the kind of reason why I'd like to share this, this section of the book. Okay, that's great. Are you ready for it? Um, So the preface of the book, the preface of the book listed the four human rights as outlined by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that relate to the workplace um, and that are inherent to all people. The rights are as follows. One, everyone has the right to work, to free choice of employment, to just and favorable conditions of work, and to protection against unemployment. Two, everyone without any discrimination has the right to equal pay for equal work. Three, everyone who works has the right to just and favorable remuneration, ensuring for himself and his family an existence worthy 
of human dignity and supplemented if necessary by other means of social protection. And four, everyone has the right to form and to join trade unions for the protection of his interests. Individuals who wage war in the workplace through bullying behavior frequently violate these human rights, causing great harm to the individual with whom their wars are waged, as well as the organization itself. Bullying behavior is extraordinarily common. A study conducted by Workplace Bullying Institute found that 65.6 million people have been affected by bullying behavior in the workplace. Additional findings include 27% of workers have direct experience with abusive conduct at work. 56% of bullying behavior is by managers, supervisors, and people in leadership positions. Men are more likely than women to demonstrate bullying behavior, 69% versus 31, but women target other women at a higher rate than men do, 68% versus 57%. Men and women alike target women at a higher rate than they target men, and 72% of employers deny, discount, encourage, rationalize, or defend bullying in the workplace. The Institute defines bullying behavior as repeated mistreatment, abusive conduct that is threatening, humiliating, or intimidating, work sabotage, or verbal abuse. Ralph Kilman, co-author of the Thomas Kilman Conflict Mode Instrument, describes individuals who demonstrate bullying behavior as people who make life in the organization unbearable, dangerous, and fearful for, for others, usually by their extreme aggressiveness and sometimes by their extreme passivity. The Workplace Bullying Institute study also found that employers frequently fail to appropriately react to abusive conduct and are far more likely to deny the behavior is occurring or discount the impact of it, leading to 61% of targets leaving their jobs as the only way to eliminate the bullying. Rather than taking positive actions to stop the bullying behavior and support the person who is being harmed by it, employers tend to create additional harm. 25% of employers deny bullying behavior exists. 16% of employers discount the behavior. 15% rationalize it. 12% eliminate the behavior in some manner. 11% defend it. 10% acknowledge it but fail to address it. 6% condemn it and 5% encourage it. And then I go on to list um, about 30 different signs of, what, of how you can recognize bullying behavior. Right. And then I want to just talk, um, read, read one paragraph about the impact of bullying. Although sure. bullying behavior can often be the catalyst of short-term spikes in production, the behavior is insidious to creating long-term productivity. A study conducted by Dr. John Medina, a developmental molecular biologist who is an affiliate professor of bioengineering at the University of Washington School of Medicine, found that individuals who are bullied in the workplace performed 50% worse on cognitive tests than their non-bullied counterparts. Another study conducted by Dr. Noreen Tehrani, a psychologist with expertise in trauma, found that individuals who experience workplace bullying exhibit similar psychological and physical symptoms such as nightmares and anxiety, as victims of violence from Northern Ireland and soldiers returning from overseas combat. Another study conducted by Anna Nyberg of the Stress Institute in Stockholm of more than 3,100 men in a typical workplace environment over the course of 10 years 
found that employees with bullying supervisors defined as incompetent, inconsiderate, secretive, and uncommunicative were 60% more likely to suffer a heart attack or other life-threatening heart conditions. Bullying behavior creates a ripple effect and negative consequences on a person's physical, mental, and economic well-being, as well as having negative impacts on coworker relationships and relationships with friends and family. Wow. And the rest of the chapter goes on to talk about other impacts that it has on um, on your body, as well as socially, economic, and then on the organization itself. So it's a really, really significant issue. And I remember one time being in the workplace, and um, the CEO told me, you need to look out for so-and-so and so-and-so. They're big bullies. And I turned around and walked away and thought, hmm, shouldn't you be looking out for them? <laughs> right? So it took me a while to realize that the biggest bully in the environment was the person at the very top who was highly aware of it and doing absolutely nothing about it, and ultimately to the detriment of his own company, um, but didn't really have the foresight to recognize that. And so this Lord of the Flies kind of environment is um, extraordinarily prevalent and is you know, to the CEO who really, truly doesn't care about the human beings inside the organization, it's, it's creating an incredible amount of, um, of lack of productivity and negativity to the bottom line of the organization as well. I mean, we would hope that people care about the well-being of their employees, but the fact is the behavior harms the economic well-being of the organization. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Robin, one five-star Amazon review of your book by Kimberly Walton states, Robin Short's book does more than make a case for peace in the workplace. She takes the time to explain the science behind peace and collaboration. This is a must read for any manager or facilitator who must push people past a place of conflict and into a community of understanding and bridge building. Hmm. Takes time to explain the science behind peace and collaboration. Is that something that you felt was extremely necessary to do in this book, Robin? I really did. Um, And the reason is because, um, you know, one day, you know how we do our deep thinking while we're driving? (laughs) I was driving down the highway and I was thinking, I was thinking, you know, it's really interesting the way this kind of goes back to your first question. The, why do human beings behave the way we do? Why do we harm people when, when helping people feel so much better? Like why do we spend so much right. time in anger when love is so – it feels – it physically feels good? Why do we continuously choose what harms us when what helps us is the obvious like, like, like personal feedback loop, right? And it occurred to me we only – free will and free choice – only truly exists when you understand what your choices are, right? So if I don't know how to manage conflict, if I don't know how to be a peacemaker, it's actually not one of my choices. And I started really kind of spending more time on that thought, and I began to realize the greatest tool that we have for peace building is our brain. If I don't understand this, this, you know, thing inside of me that's literally driving all of my behavior. How can I ever create actual change? We need to understand um, 
we need to understand what we're actually working with. And most of us don't have even an elementary understanding of the way the brain works. So the first chapter of the book really dives into um, the neuroscience of conflict. You know, what areas of your brain are being activated in conflict and what can you do to disengage it and re-engage other areas of your brain that will be in a place, rewire it. Exactly. Exactly. And this incredible, you know, we are at this incredible time in our human history where we literally know how to rewire our brain. Like we can, for the first time ever, change the course of our human development intentionally. And um, that's incredibly powerful. (laughs) But we can only do it if we know that we can do it. (laughs) Uh (laughs) How true. Let's talk about Robin Short, the person. You've written or helped write three books with the word peace in the title, the other being prayers for peace. How far back does your dedicated altruism and spirit of peace go? Did you inherit this from your parents, and was it part of your upbringing? That's a, uh, that's a fantastic question. Yes and no. So I grew up um, – with in in a family of law enforcement, my father was in law enforcement, and all the men in terms of grandfathers and uncles were in law enforcement in some capacity. And so, growing up in Dallas, which um, historically has been a very um, segregated city, and has historically been a city that has had a lot of race issues, from as early as I can remember. This idea of disparity, this lack of equality between races was in my awareness. And watching how um, people were treated in law enforcement and, um, and at a very, very young age, I mean like maybe five or six, so in some way this has to be woven into my DNA, I realized that as a white, blonde American, I, earned, I came into the world with privileges I did not earn, and that other people came into the world without those privileges for absolutely no reason. And that lack of fairness has driven my, um, my thought processes and my behavior my entire life. I also, when I was in the third grade, my mother disagreed with, some, with the, the curriculum and some of the ideas that were being taught in my elementary school, and she decided to teach us at home. And that was in 1981 when nobody was really doing that. And the school district, you know, came knocking on our door and said, we're, you know, the truancy officer showed up, which was fascinating to observe, right? Because I was, I was in this law enforcement um, environment. So the police officer show up ready to arrest my parents. And that embarked this long legal battle where the school district took my parents to court and they won, my parents won. And then the school district appealed it to the Texas Supreme Court, and we won there. And so the state versus short became the document that made it legal to homeschool in Texas. And watching my parents um, do something that the world seemed, and we seemed radical, and we had news media in and out of our house, so frequently they stopped knocking. I mean, they would just walk in and say, you know, you who were here <laughs> on the first page of the Dallas Morning News every day. Um, watching my parents 
go to battle um, legally and socially, because I would say the majority of the community thought we were crazy, because they believed in something really strongly, I think had a pretty significant impact on my um, on my development and my uh, my my belief that it truly takes one person to create a ripple effect. Now, that ripple right. effect can be good or bad, right? So you need to be mindful right. about the ripple effect that you're creating. But this idea that one person can be tremendously powerful um, has always been uh, has always held me to this idea that we have a responsibility to do that. Uh, but I wouldn't say it was probably only when I was about 38 that I think I had enough education and life experience and um, work experience to harness it all into something in a focused kind of way. So, Robin, with all the emphasis on anti-bullying and tolerance, that has swept over our schools in the past few years. You would think that peace would be more prevalent in our schools today. Do you find this to be true, Robin? And if not, why not? Well, um, one of the reasons why I just love interviewing with you is because you ask the best questions. I think that anti-bullying and tolerance are focusing on the wrong things. I don't want less bullying. I want more peace. So the focus on anti-bullying keeps the focus on bullying, and it keeps the dialogue on bullying instead of the dialogue being on peace. And the ripple effect of that is that we have less bullying. And I think tolerance is the exact same thing. I beg you not to tolerate me. What I want is for you to embrace me. (laughs) So when we teach tolerance, what we're saying is these people have a right to be here instead of how excited are we that people who aren't like me are here and I have opportunities to learn something new. So I think that the intention is within integrity, right? There's integrity in the intention, but the process isn't holding itself to the outcome that they're looking for. I know on your fantastic website, robinshort.com, you offer a myriad of positive change services and classes. Do you offer any of these services for children and teens? Are you connected with any schools per se? I am not currently connected with any schools, um, but what I am very, very interested in doing is working with schools and developing dispute resolution programs that will teach children right. how to how to manage conflict, um, specifically with restorative practices. And I was with a group of teachers um, several weeks ago in a in a workshop around restorative practices, and they were they were with great intention really wanting to build restorative dispute resolution practices in their classrooms where where kids were were able to manage conflict and also where the teachers were using restorative practices with the children. Um, And she was expressing some frustration with teachers that just didn't want to try it out. And I said, are you as the principal modeling restorative practices as an employer? (laughs) Because it's very, you're going to have a lot of challenges trying to get your teachers to model something in the classroom that you are not modeling as an employer, as an organization. And the question irritated her, 
but it's, I think, the right question. Um, we want teachers to do something in the classroom that as adults we don't want to do with each other. And I think we're going to keep meeting resistance there until, until we all start kind of like inside of an organization, the, the person at the top dictates how everything works, whether it's a CEO, or a, a, a principal, or a prison warden. The, the leadership at the very top has a ripple effect all the way down. So if we want to start incorporating these dispute resolution practices in the classroom, the employers at the district level need to be incorporating it as well. And I think that that's where I'll be able to have, just for my own training and expertise, is the most impact, is basically a train-the-trainer type work. Um, but I think right. it's incredibly important. And we see a lot of this dispute, resol uh, dispute resolution type work in Montessori schools. Montessori children, they, they, have, they, they have such, from what I have seen, they really model peace building in their dispute resolution processes. And when the children have a conflict, they say, we need to go to the peace, ta the peace table and talk this out. And it's, right. it's a beautiful thing to watch. So I wrote a poem years ago called Peace Begins Within. And the opening line said, how do we find peace in a time of war? Robin, my question is, with the media constantly bombarding us with war, violence, and conflict just about 24 hours a day, does this make your work as a peace coach that much harder? It makes, I think what it, I think the challenge is that there's a huge diffusion of responsibility and that all of us who are consumers of media want to blame it on the media when in fact the media is only delivering this to us because it's what we're watching, Right. So, I mean, these are all for-profit organizations. And if stories, of, if stories of people doing good things in the world got ratings, that is all we would see. And that, I think, is where my greatest frustration is, is we look at this political climate that we're in, where we have candidates who are so visceral and so nasty to one another. And, and my perspective is, we created that. The only reason that this exists is because we give it our attention. And the minute we stop giving it our attention, they'll shift because they're there to make money. Um, so so it's, it's sort of like, you know, buying candy because you like the way it tastes and then suing the candy maker for your cavity. So where what I, what I try to you know, help people understand is that we're, we're responsible for the world we live in and we all have power to make change. Um, people like to complain on social media, but when given opportunities to go do something, that's really where the rubber meets the road is, are you willing to be a change maker? Um, and I think those people who just want to grumble, they're, they're part of the problem. <laughs> I don't know if that really Before, answers your question. <laughs> oh, that, that, that is fine. Um, before we run out of time, I'd like, if I may, to go back to one of your earlier books 
an illustrated children's book collaboration with a young man named Nanan Williams. How was that much-needed book received, and what was the feedback? Did any schools pick up and use that book? Oh, and by the way, how is Nanan doing these days? Have you been in touch with him lately? I have, yes. Um, so the book has done um, really well. Um, I would say the the schools that I am aware of that it's in are in private preschools that have a kind of focus on this this type of curriculum. Um, right. But the feedback that I have gotten specifically from the children, I think, is what gets me the most excited is that children from as early as young as three really get the concept and they really understand wow. that they can be peacemakers. And that, I, I mean, awesome. that makes me so happy and gets me so excited. And then children as old as, um, you know, fourth grade, which I think is like nine or 10 years old, even they enjoy the book. They enjoy it at a different level, but they recognize that they're able to recognize that there are really clear actions that they can take to, to participate in peace so the book has it, it's done really well, and the feedback that I've gotten has been very exciting. Nanan is um, Nanan is doing really well. There has not been any um, movement on his legal case, so unfortunately, he's still incarcerated. But he is spending okay. his time in prison incredibly productively, and he uses my book, Peace in the Workplace, as well as Kenneth Cloak, who I know he's been on your program as well. Kenneth's yes. book, The Dance of Opposites. Um, and he has he has actually built a conflict resolution program through through largely through Ken's work and then using this book as well. Um, and he teaches other inmates conflict resolution skills that they can implement in the prison system. And he's gotten a lot of attention from the professors that come in from the University of Houston, Clear Lake, and um, but it's given him a great sense of purpose. For in the time that he's there, and it's been really, he continues to amaze me with the level of integrity that he um, that he lives his life with. You know, being wrongfully right. incarcerated and and remaining so committed to bettering whatever whatever piece of the world he can, and um, and he hasn't stopped doing it. What an awesome, awesome young man. Wow. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm just glad to hear he's doing well. So <laughs> what's next for Robin Short? What other irons do you have in the fire coming up? Well, what I'm doing right now is um, really focusing on building my training program. And my, tra- my training program is kind of three, three tiers. One is working with um, professionals in the workplace and training them on, on conflict management dispute resolution skills. And I do that in two ways, one through a training program that I host, and then I also go into organizations and provide training inside corporations. And I'm also very passionate about law enforcement. And I think that there are so many opportunities for peace building training um, inside of our law enforcement. And where I have been right. able to do that so far is in Rwanda, working with police officers um, there who are, Rwanda is 20 years, 22, 22 years outside of the 1994 genocide. And they as a country are incredibly committed to peace building. I have never seen a population of people 
that are so focused on peace and that incorporate peace in their, in their daily language. Um, they are just hungry for safety and security. And so they bring trainers into their police departments. And, um, and, and I've, been do, I've been going there for three years. This, uh, next year will be my, my third time back, um, providing leadership training, de-escalation training um, with the police forces there. And, and in that vein, I'm really wanting to do that type of work here in the United States. So I've started a, I'm at the very, very beginning phases of it, but um, what I'm calling the Peace and Conciliation Project, and that's designed to, um, to, to begin to repair the wounds that exist in the United States in, in race relations, which I believe are really founded in, um, in slavery and the, the wound of slavery that has never been properly tended to and how that is having the ripple effect that it's having inside education, inside of criminal justice, you know, with our prison school to prison pipeline. Um, I think all of this bias and discrimination and prejudice that's woven into our, you know, our DNA as a country is really founded in, in us not uh, tending to slavery properly. Right. I mean, a, it should have never happened, but it did. And we didn't, um, we didn't move out of that with dignity and we didn't do it in a way that provided security and we have never formally apologized and done anything to make it right. So what the Peace and Conciliation Project is designed to do is to have, it's designed to be a city-by-city initiative that will hold dialogues with the intention of outcome. And so there will need to be partnership with city officials so that whatever the community says, this is how repairing the harm would look like for us. The city says we're willing to meet that need. So um, in terms of biting off way more than you can chew, (laughs) that project is going to take hundreds of partners and thousands and thousands of participants, but I think it's work that absolutely has to be done. And so um, I'm in the very beginning phases of of developing that. Hopefully next time you talk to me, I'm going to have great stories to tell. (laughs) I can't wait. If there's anyone who can do it, it's you. So, Robin, give out your contact information, websites, how people can contact you, follow you, get to to know more about you and your book and your stories and your mission. Uh, just give out any contact information. Well, thank you so much. My website is um, robinshort.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at Robin Short. And Robin is with a Y, so R-O-B-Y-N-S-H-O-R-T. And you can also follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Dr. Robin Short. And I would um, uh, love the opportunity to engage with your listeners at at a deeper level. This has been the Funky Writers Show with me, Robert Batista. One of the easiest ways to peer into my soul is to download and read my free micro story called My Baby Has No Name from Smashwords.com. My guest has been a person I call a woman of the millennium, author, teacher, healer, and so much more, Robin Short. Her new book is called Peace in the Workplace, Transforming Conflict into Collaboration. Make sure you get your copy today. Thank you so much, Robin, for being a guest on the Funky Writers Show. Thank you, Rob. 
It's been excellent. Have a great evening. Bye now. You too.